Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Be There with Dali Loudspeakers, where we look at the unsung heroes behind the great recordings. Producers, writers, mixers, we should really talk about the tea lady one day as well. These podcasts tie in with Dali's own music magazine, which celebrates the minds behind the music. It's also called Be There, and you can get a free copy by going to dali-speakers.com slash be there. I'm Andrew Harrison, and I've got a couple of guests with me to talk about matters featuring in and related to Be There magazine, and they're also going to be nominating some of their favourite moments in recorded pop history. We're going to add those tunes to a title playlist for this episode, which you can find on that Dali Facebook page, and you can investigate them through your very nice Dali speakers. So let's meet our guests. Paul Trinker is a music journalist and author, the writer of the acclaimed David Bowie biography Starman, and also Sympathy for the Devil, The Birth of the Rolling Stones and the Death of Brian Jones, amongst many other books. He's a former editor of Mojo magazine and, in a past life, he was a member of the indie band Niam Niam, who recorded tracks with New Order's Peter Hook back in the 1980s. Hello, Paul. Welcome Hi, to Andrew. Be There. How are you doing? <laughs> Thank you for digging up my dark past. <laughs> <laughs> Music journalism is slightly more secure than making records with members of New Order, but not that much more. Did, did, did Hookie actually... Was he, uh, was he twisting the knobs? Was he the producer? Oh, he did all of that, yeah. They'd... Um, they were just in the process of changing from um, Joy Division, really. So, so they just right from the early days. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, he came in, he lent us all the gear for the album. So when they were recording Low Life, he brought all the Prophet 5, the emulator that you had to smack on the leg with a hammer to get working. Really? And all this technology. <laughs> and he brought it over at night time. So he drove over the Pennines in his Audi Quattro, you know, and goodness knows how he was uh, managed to work 24 hours a day. I've got no dedication. That will be exactly, dedication. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah he was a, actually a, a lovely fella. It was quite a grueling experience, but amazing. To really. be taken under the wing and the gigantic leather U boat captain coat of uh, Peter Hook must have been quite an experience. Mm, yeah. So what you edited uh, Mojo at the end of the 90s and the early noughties. I mean, it's a that's kind of like the curator position of rock history, a position of great responsibility. Did you feel that you were kind of you know, superintending the writing of rock history. Oh, I think I was really lucky because I got in fairly early as as features editor um, oh. in about ninety four, and then became editor. You know, maybe five years, four or five years later, and then did that for about four or five years. Yeah, because at the time we were we were kind of finding out this history for the first time, so oh. it was really. A privilege, so you'd give writers a long time to work on something. You know, maybe a year if they just came to you with an idea, an idea, and then you could run sixteen or twenty pages on it. You know, and how lucky were we? Really, it was amazing. It was also a strange cost because that was more or less as the massive disruption of digital, you know, illegal downloads, and that, which eventually leads to streaming. And that's where the past kind of dislodges the present as the main event in rock. You know, it's like most rock music is now, to some extent or another a nostalgia project about rediscovering great things in the past and the new things have to reflect those great things. Well, it's sad if that is the case. I mean, at the time, there's also an element when you find something amazing from the past, does it matter that it's old? You know, Mm. if you find some pioneering record from 1958 or 1960, for me, the the big sort of discovery was meeting all the kind of blues guys who'd made it in the 40s, 50s and 60s and realising in many ways they were younger than the pop stars we know who, you know, chronologically were 20 years younger than them because yeah. these guys were, were doing it right at the beginning of it all. So, but it would be shame if, obviously, it's going to be a shame if we're, if, if nostalgia dominates everything and everything we see is, is kind of seen through a prism of, of the past or whatever because it's got to be part of a, of a continuum, really. And at the time, you know, we did, we would have people like Beck or, or uh, Radiohead on the cover, you know, mm. really early on. Um, you know, I was a guy who saw um, 
than perform OK Computer at Glastonbury, the muddy one in 97. Yeah. We came back and we switched covers and dumped whoever it was to put them on the cover. So we were lucky. We had it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, your book, uh, your Brian Jones uh, book, Sympathy for the Devil, uh, makes the argument that, that he's kind of hugely underappreciated for effectively creating the band and then more or less being sidelined as this kind of troublesome embarrassment. Was he really the the druggy mess of conventional wisdom? Well, he certainly was a druggy mess, but that was um, that was the effect of what happened to him. Mm. But really, my premise is that he was actually the visionary who thought that this kind of black R&B, Chicago blues could be mainstream. Everybody else thought it was nice hobby music. Keith did, Mick Jagger did. That's why he stayed at the LSE. So Brian Jones was the one who really via his personality flaws, was driven. This had to be big, and he's the one who pushed it. So he started it out, but he didn't have the stamina. And we need stamina. You know, yeah. if you're a pop star, you need to be able to kind of develop a persona to kind of... Um, so all the slings and arrows of, you know, of, of misfortune just bounce off you, and they didn't bounce off him. You know, he um, became a casualty. and it's But it's a great kind of psychological study, if, if nothing else. Mm. Albeit with a sad end. <laughs> yes, with a sad end. Yeah, no spoilers, yes. Uh, Paul's written a fantastic history of the Stratocaster, the great rock and roll guitar, for the next issue of Be There magazine, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit later. Also back with us is one of our regulars, Kate Hutchinson, who writes for the New York Times, The Guardian, The Observer and Mixmag, and travels the world exploring new byways in Middle Eastern, African and generally non-Western music. Welcome back, Kate. How are you doing? Yeah, really good, thanks. What have you been your favourite discoveries of the past few months? We talked on another show about this 300 BPM... Tanzanian, what's it called? Singale music? Singale music, What else yes. have you been discovering in your Indiana Jones of world music oh, role? Yeah. Um, I, I'm really enjoying at the moment a lot of the sort of folkloric electronic sounds that are coming out of Latin America. There is a um, big sort of uh, movement and scene of producers and artists and bands um, sort of all around the Andes uh, who are taking, who are drawing on their sort of folkloric traditions and, yeah. and roots and the music that they'd hear on the radio growing up and they're mixing it with quite down tempo, quite what you might call chill out yeah. um, electronic music. I mean it's been given all sorts of names, poncho house, shamanic poncho techno, <laughs> ayahuasca techno, whatever. Yeah, exactly. But um but I mean that's you know, that's belittling um it I think a little bit. And I think um the way that a lot of the producers are using those sort of Latin rhythms with contemporary club sounds is really interesting. So I Twitter stalked you and spotted an album of Andean folk Electronica, which I thought that can't be real, and I gave it a go. And it's um, this artist is called Nicola Cruz, uh, and the track was called Sicko. I'll put it on the on the title playlist for the show. It's incredible. It's like you know my background's in kind of British electronic music and also craftwork and things like that. I find it both accessible and stretching. So who is he? What's he all about? He's from Ecuador. He's the sort of uh, one of the pioneers of this new scene of producers and bands and artists. And this is his second album for a label from Buenos Aires called ZZK. And he's just brilliant. He's not only is he just a really lovely, interesting chap, but he's got a really um, great way with rhythm. You know, you're right. It sounds ref it sounds refreshing. It's not the sort of cheesy thing you might expect when I say folkloric sounds in house music, which sounds a bit like, oh, God, what's that? But it's really, um, it feels really organic and just just a great record to put on when you're at home. Are you saying nice put food? your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care? <laughs> or to rave to, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, where do you find this stuff? I mean, you kind of, this is, I mean, you literally got perf you know, favourite record shop stop off places. Um, it's a mixture of um, that and also I'm a real band camp obsessive. 
I I love Bandcamp. I spend hours and hours. I spend just all my pocket money on it, trawling through to see because you can search um, by you know by um, genre. You can search by sort of territory. You can search by new and best selling, and 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 it's all in de- you know a lot of yeah. it is independently released. So. Well, most of it is independently released, I think. So um, that's where a lot of my musical discovery happens. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to put Siku by Nicola Cruz on the playlist, and it goes very well after We Love You by the Rolling Stones. If you'd like a copy of Be There, the magazine, go to dali-speakers.com slash be there, and we'll send you one free of cost. OK, let's move on to the Stratocaster. It's the emblematic rock and roll guitar, a design classic as well as a tool of the trade. Keith Richards calls it its creator, Leo Fender, the equivalent of a Leonardo da Vinci. But what makes the Strat so special? Paul Trinker has written a feature on exactly that subject for the next issue of Be There magazine, and he's here to talk about it. Paul, what does make the Strat so special? You can approach it from so many viewpoints. It's, it's actually such a lovely, tactile object, and it both sounds amazing and it's just it's just an ergonomic marvel really so if you think it was it was really only the the third solid body electric guitar ever made there was the telecaster then gibson produced the les paul and then fender wanted to top them in some ways they just wanted a kind of top line model they could charge more for so they carved the body more so it was smoother and more streamlined it was a big deal. People used to say it's got two horns. Mm. In modern parlance, you'd say there's two cutaways, so it hangs better, and you can get your fingers high up on the on the fretboard. But it just stayed in tune, and it was also kind of invented for music that didn't yet exist. That was what was amazing. You know, Lee Fender created it more or less a kind of um, uh, early rock and roll, country and western, and yet, you know. Jimi Hendrix used it. People like Buddy Guy had it cranked up through a bass amplifier and could get all these sounds out of it. So it's future-proofed, but ergonomically perfect and, as I say, just invented for music that didn't exist, which is pretty far-reaching. That's interesting, and and you actually see that happening a lot, don't you, where the device calls the music into being. I mean, I like electronica, and you would not get Acid House if a bunch of people in Japan hadn't tried to make a cheap baseline machine, and then people started abusing it and using it wrongly, and then you get a whole kind of new kind of music. Exactly. Well, the thing is, musicians... Obviously, they just like to try out new stuff, mm. whether it's David Bowie with the Stratocaster right in the early days. If you look at all the West Side Chicago music where they were really pushing the envelope, distorting sounds, cranking stuff up, everybody would want new bits of gear because they'd earn more money. A lot of them were busking on the streets in Maxwell Street just by Chicago University. If you had more volume, you'd get more money. It was as simple as that. So it was super competitive, and that tool would give you something unique in exactly the same way that, yeah, they're TV three or three might just give you something that nobody else has yeah it's interesting to read in your piece how um leo fender seemed very very focused on customer service the very kind of american ideal that you know filters into early rock and roll the taking care of business thing the idea that you're here to serve the people and give them a good experience there is something lovely about that yeah they kept really close to the musicians and he really cared about the sound he wasn't a musician himself but he just talked to them all the time so I don't know how long they prototyped their stuff. It might be, um, you know, a couple of years. And with the Strat, they tried one, what they call a tremolo arm for wiggling the sound. It's really a vibrato arm. And they had to just drop one and then redo all the tooling. But they just kept close to people and they do custom orders. And because they were in California in Orange County, there were lots of people around them. They'd just go and try stuff out on a on a bandstand. But it was small, you know, you could... Because the, the whole business, the whole rock and roll business and 
and country western business was so small, you could really get leverage if you were in the right place. And that's what they did. Who are your key strat users? Who are your stars of that particular tool? Uh, well, I'm, um, I love Buddy Guy's playing. Mm-hmm. Um, early Ike Turner, he was just a kind of champion of rock and roll. And there's a song he did with Otis Rush that's got him on Stratocaster. And it just sounds like something from another planet. We can't ignore Dick Dale, mm-hmm. you know, we, who we've heard on all those sort of movie soundtracks. That's just a really cranked up gold Stratocaster through a massive Fender Showman setup. And of course, Jimi Hendrix was the guy who showed us what what you know what was to come that really unleashed the full potential. But then you can hear Radiohead or The Strokes, and you just hear a Stratocaster. It can do anything. It can just sit nicely in the middle of everything else, or it can be right in your face. You know, you can you you can record lovely country and western, or you can re- record heavy metal with it. You know. Can you spot a Strat? Can you go? That's a Strat. Um, you can when it's you can to an extent, but the the. The, the thing about the Strat, it's it's kind of response to the player. So it's mm. not really that it's a signature sound. Um, it's more a kind of signature package. So it, it's, it's not just that it sounds a certain way. And people will tell you that. They'll say, oh, it's got single-coil pickups. This makes it sound a certain way. Well, you can mess around with everything. And, and a good guitarist can actually make every guitar sound more or less the same. You know, mm. they can get their set. But it's actually how you respond to it. It's how it feels under your under your your fingers so it's more kind of cerebral connection than just an oral one as well so i think it's and then the fact it's reliable on stage you know so it's much more than just a sound although it has a characteristic sound and buddy holly just that straight that straight sound you know at that point in time that has to be a fender strap there's a very funny bit in the um uh, in the piece where you point out that as well as being this amazing precision tool it's also a mass production product so Jimi Hendrix can smash into pieces and just go and buy a brand new one around the corner you know that's you've got this amazing combination of high design almost like an Apple device you know you might drop it down the toilet you can always go and get one it'll work absolutely perfectly well because it's a mass production device yeah it's like a Zippo lighter and um, you know it's, it's designed for mass production and in fact that was Lee Fender's genius because everyone who came before him had very much handcrafted instruments yeah. that used really precious tone woods and of course today when we can't really use Brazilian rosewood there are actually regulations stopping you shifting it from Europe to America you'll need yeah. those paperwork Fender Stratocaster it's just older which we use in photocopy paper and then and then maple. They're pretty simple. They're pretty sustainable. And uh, so you can get a good guitar made anywhere. To somebody like me who's never never been a musician, um, the key thing about the Stratocaster is it may make you sound like a rock star, but it definitely makes you look like a rock star. It is the kind of... It's the shape that says this is rock music. Well, sometimes when... When something is invented early on, it creates a template for everything. We can only see it through that kind of prism, you know. Mm. And uh, Lee Fender certainly did that with the Telecaster and the Stratocaster. He got it right first time. So whenever we hear anything like that, it, it doesn't sound right if it's not the real thing. You know, mm. it just has formed a template for all of us. And it, that's an interesting phenomenon psychologically as, as well, you know, because the old pickups sound better. And... Mm. Of course, you can do testing to see if people, you know, get rid of the placebo effect or, or whatever. But for all of us, it's just created the template, even to kids who didn't hear it when it, yeah. it's come out. It's it's just there in the ether. You know, we hear them all the time. So they're, they're so archetypal. You know, they're, 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 they formed a, 
just really a model for how guitar should sound that yeah. all of us kind of cleave to. You mentioned Otis Rush a minute ago. Is there another track, that, uh, an emblematic Strat track you'd like to put onto the playlist? Well, I would choose some early Buddy Guy. I believe um, first time I heard the blues is him on a, mm-hmm. uh, on a sunburst Stratocaster that a woman from Chicago bought for him. And that's just a really lovely um, fluid sound. And then I'd really want to... In fact, perhaps even more than that, I'd, I'd suggest a bit of early Curtis Mayfield. Uh, I think his version of People Get Ready has got a lovely tremolo sound, and that's all Fender Stratocaster. He was big, you know, he was a model for Jimi Hendrix. If you listen to all of Jimmy's chordal yeah. and kind of rhythm work, it all comes straight from Curtis Mayfield. That's just a beautiful, clean, clear Stratocaster, Curtis Mayfield or Pop Staples. That, they'd be my Desert Island ones. Fantastic, we'll drop them in. Your free copy of our music magazine, Be There With Dali, at dali-speakers.com slash be there. These podcasts mark the launch of the brand new Catch One soundbar, bringing Dali's famous high-end audio reproduction and exquisite Danish design factor to a new breed of active speaker for your home entertainment system. Upgrade your audio from Netflix or Amazon Prime Video, games, Blu-ray or DVD. Play music from Spotify, Apple Music or your phone via Bluetooth with Dali's peerless clarity and separation and do it all on a beautiful device that's easy to use with the absolute best in sound quality. Hear what you're missing with the ultimate sound companion. That's the Dali Catch One. Search Dali Catch with a K to find out more. OK, let's move on from the carefully crafted to moments of one-off brilliance. Great pop is not just made of virtuoso performances and intricate compositions, it's also made of noise and noises, those surprising, unexpected moments that aren't even music, but they make a record sound amazing. Could be the crash of an orchestra, the boom of a distant explosion, or a load of frog noises on New Order's Perfect Kiss, which is a personal favourite. The great Trevor Horn calls them sonic events, and I've asked our two guests to choose their favourite noise and the place where it appears. Kate Hutchinson, what is the noise that you love? Can I just say... Out of all of your assignments, Andrew, this has been the hardest. Really? To, to identify <laughs> one noise, one single noise in all of the songs that mm-hmm. I like ever. Um, I, I spent I spent hours, hours thinking about this. And I thought, you know, is it going to be the gunshots and the cash register in MIA mm-hmm. um, paper planes? Because, because I was thinking about samples, really, I suppose, first and foremost. But I've landed on my favourite noise. Uh, and it's not a sample. It's the sound of Bjork's scream in It's Oh So Quiet. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, that was her sort of um, sort of almost satirical big band musical number. Yeah. And, and you're, you're going along with the, with the very kind of quiet moments and da-da-da. And then, and then this massive scream just comes out of nowhere. And I just remember thinking that it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. She actually does a couple of screams on that record, doesn't she? Because you play the blues, wow, wow. And then uh, the, uh, the, uh, the second or the third chorus she, where she uh, sings, there's no mistaking, this is it. She goes, there's no mistaking, this is it. Exactly. And it's um, it's not singing like we're used to hearing in the pop charts, is it? It's not. And I tell you what, um, it's great karaoke tune, that. Uh, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> my best pal does that, uh, that does that tune at karaoke down our local pub and, uh, and it, get, it has the desired effect. People really are still scared out of their wits when you do that, this is it bit. 
Fantastic. Well, when Iceland knocked England out of the World Cup a couple of years ago, we played it so, so quiet in the pub to cheer everybody up, and it slightly <laughs> did. Paul Trinker, what's your favourite noise? I think we may have mentioned this record before already on the well, show. Well, firstly, that's a great choice, and that mm. makes me think of John Lennon, uh, Mother, at the end, where it's just screaming, and yeah. that's just an amazing sound. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, of course, that is a fantastic song, the, the Bjork one. Well, I, I went for Ike Turner, mm-hmm. and... Uh, it's his guitar solo on All Your Love and you've got Otis Rush who's a kind of quintessential smooth blues man and then suddenly Ike Turner comes in with this crazy vibratoed clashing sound you know that probably was well into the red you know yeah. super compressed made in a tiny studio and it's just as kind of um, it's as kind of packed with sound as on the edges as any pop music possibly could be and this yeah. is a guy who'd almost helped create rock and roll early on was a horrible, nasty person, yes. but nonetheless an utter genius. And he's just turned up in the studio and turned the track around. It's and this, this is about sort of a minute and ten seconds in or something like that, and it just hangs in the air hallucinogenically, like mm. this kind of explosion of colour. Yeah. Uh, like something strange is happening to your brain. It's quite astonishing. So we're going to put both those tracks onto the title playlist, and you can have a listen. For your free copy of our music magazine, Be There With Dali, Go to dali-speakers.com forward slash be there. From Paul Simon to Damon Albarn, from Malcolm McLaren to Robert Plant, the path from the Western Recording Studio to the undiscovered music of the Middle East and Africa is a well-worn one. The moment when your favourite musician suddenly gets the wider world can be liberating and exciting, or it can be a little bit embarrassing sometimes. And what do we make of it now that cultural appropriation is a subject of hot debate? We have international music explorer Kate Hutchinson with us. She is the Indiana Jones of music. Who's been a good reverse ambassador? Who's done it right for uh, African and Middle Eastern music, do we think? Oh, gosh. Well, I suppose there's... I think we're in a bit of a golden age for uh, collaboration with um, with musicians from the you know, Western countries and from the non-Western countries. And um, really a lot of that is happening in electronic music, I would say. There was an album last year that came out by Auntie Flo, who's a brilliant uh, producer, and he, you know, he's a touring DJ and he is lucky enough to go to lots of different countries around the world. And he was... Um, collaborating with lots and lots of different musicians from all the different places that he met and it sort of fed into this sort of this tour diary. You've also got uh, producers like James Holden who have made um, albums with Moroccan Nawa musicians and I think there's um, just a lot of interesting things going on in, in the sort of collaborative sense of um, of music from around the world. But it hasn't always been... There. There's a sort of slippery scale, isn't there, of sort mm. of cultural tourism. And it's a subject that keeps me awake at, at night quite often, Andrew. So, who's, so who's, who's done it not especially well or perhaps taken the wrong approach? Because, I mean, for instance, Paul Simon's Graceland's is a great record. It was controversial at the time because it recorded in South Africa when the boycott was on. But he seems to have... You genuinely collaborated in a properly mutually sharing, respectful manner with these musicians who would not otherwise have had a platform. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's, you know, I've read some sort of criticisms of that album now that have said, oh, it's a bit like, you know, I went on a nice holiday and here's what I found. And I think that's a really sort of, um, you know, dangerous area. That, that's a sort of, um, obvious area that you might stray into if you're going somewhere around the world and you're like, oh, I'm really inspired by this. How do I make that seem authentic? But I think Paul Simon really did. And I think, you know, the sort of the sort of lines that he crossed, you know, the boycott to actually get to those musicians and record with them. Mm. He wasn't nicking their samples of their music and not paying him. He was actually working with them. And I think that album, it's all about context, isn't it? That album really exposed 
a lot of people onto music that they wouldn't have ordinarily heard and made stars out of Lady Blacksmith Mombasa. Yeah. It's a complex one, though, because if you look at people like Paul Bowles, who recorded all those early Moroccan guys and actually wrote down their stories, he kept the money. So <laughs> a lot of it is about the money. The money, yeah. And, you know, I've seen a, a lot of that go on and I've had arguments with people like Ry Kuda when he did the, the Cuban Fellas. Initially, he was going to release that as an album under his own name. This is where it's the social Yeah, club. and I actually had an argument with him. I said, well, that's not really a Ry Kuda album. He stormed out of the room. And then later on, another fellow who did the sleeve note said that's what made them change the name of the ah. group to Buena Vista Social Club. But can you imagine if that album came out as a Ry Kuda album? Yeah, well, I can imagine if that happened now. I mean, you know, a lot of mistakes were made in the past. And I think what's really interesting about um, a lot of musicians now will say what you like of millennials, but I think there's a lot more um, consciousness yeah. around that. I mean, think uh, speaking about sort of um, taking things and coming out on a different name, I mean, the whole new wave scene was basically paved with the Burundi beat, right? So that's the whole sound, the whole from Adam and the Ants to Bow Wow Wow, where that that um, that drumming sound had been nicked by a guy called uh, Mike Stephenson and used as a sort of basis of this weird pop track in 1971, I think. Malcolm LeCaron had heard that and then fed that to Adam the Ants on this kind of like fated mixtape he gave Adam of all these influences from around the world to listen to. And bow, wow, wow. And, and, um, and those drummers didn't get uh, the royalties mm. from that. The, the, the archetypal one is Bo Diddley and the, the, what we call the Bo Diddley beat. And again, actually, I had an argument with Bo Diddley where he said, they took my beat <laughs> off me, man. And we went, should have a podcast called Paul's Arguments. And I said, yeah, there seemed to be a lot. And... Um, and I said, but that was an old rhythm called Hambone, wasn't it? And he went, yeah, OK, right. And he had been ripped off. Um, and people did copy him and they copied the sound. But, you know, where is a dividing line? The people ripping him off did help him. But you've always got to be sensitive. And, yeah. and actually, people did help Bo Diddley early on. And he'd have been a cussed old fella, whether or not Absolutely, people yeah. had been fair. Or... Now, you mentioned Malcolm McLaren and my my earliest introduction to music that wasn't really kind of made in Britain or America was his Duck Rock album, which is nakedly acquisitive, but he's open about it. He travels the world. He pinches a bit of South African, uh, you know, Hosa music. He pinches, you know, double Dutch from, uh, you know, New York State, um, you know, high schools, African-American girls developing their own sound. Uh, there's, old, there's Appalachian folk. There's hip-hop and scratching. And it's nakedly all thrown together as a big old mix. And I thought the kind of boldness of that totally justified itself. Yeah, in the 80s, culture was up for grabs, wasn't it? Mm. Or was it the 70s? But I think, um, you know, I think, again, it, it all goes back to context. And it's like... When that was being made, you know, the internet wasn't around. So you weren't, there wasn't that sort of thought about, you know, the people from a country where you've, I'm not saying this is right, by the way, I'm just saying, there, I don't think there was the thought there. Um, then you had bands like Vampire Weekend, you know, who got a lot of flack for their sort of Upper West Side Soweto, they called them, which was awful. But, you know, they got a lot of flack for their Afropop influences. But that was, again, that was the internet era, the Napster era, when you suddenly had all this access to all this music. But still, social media, hadn't really happened you again you weren't really sort of aware of um people from that country their voices what they thought about it there wasn't that it, that convers that conversation that exchange yeah um which is why i think you know now i don't think you could get away with that i think a couple of the people you, you mentioned before the show that you'd uh, be interested in you know pointing out how they did it quite well was john and alice coltrane with their indian classical explorations yeah, so with them, I suppose, um, you know, Ravi Shankar was, he sort of taught 
John Coltrane and there was a sort of um, you know there was a sort of uh, passing down I suppose of uh, of the style the Indian classical styles that Ravi was playing and then also with Alice Coltrane she went and she spent a long time in an ashram and kind of really was sort of you know it wasn't just sort of like nipping you know getting on the plane nipping over to whatever and recording some samples and taking yeah. back it was like spending some real time learning from um, the masters and but what's really interesting is that you know while they did it in a way that you know it's, it's like acceptable or whatever there's a lot of people who have nicked from Indian classical music where it perhaps hasn't been so um, so thought through or so kind of considered yeah. and actually Bjork herself did uh, a lot of did it quite well and quite you know well thought through in that she employed the musicians she co-wrote with the musicians she recorded with them yeah that's key. Than, yeah. That's key, I think. You know, and I, th- I think there's artists still who are getting flack for that. I think, you know, Mumford & Sons, think what you like of them, but they did this Johannesburg album or EP a couple of years ago. And they got all sorts of um, accusations levelled at them of, of cultural appropriation and everything. But they'd they'd gone to Baba Mal from Senegal's festival and then they'd they'd recorded with Baba Mal with The Very Best, which features a Malawian singer, and with another South African artist. So they, you know, yeah. as much as it was a bit of that Paul Simon, oh, I've been inspired by somewhere, let me go and expose these artists, maybe, whatever. They were actually doing it, I think, a, with that kind of considered collaborative head-on. Do you think that it's partly a product, this criticism is a product of actually social media rather than music in that the first thing people do is try and find something to complain about to try and I don't agree with you doing this but I'm not sure why yeah I I think it's hard for me to say as somebody that is not you know um, from a marginalised minority you know um, you know I think I think it has really serious implications when done wrong but what I would say um, and it of course can be exploitative but what I would say is that for all of the let's say music critics or people kind of slamming um, artists like Vampire Weekend or giving them negative reviews for their sort of so so called cultural appropriation mm. there's not the same people giving page space or writing about say Baba Ma yeah. in, in, in that kind of way or writing about um, African and Middle Eastern artists and giving them the same exposure mm-hmm. so I think it's a bit of, um, of hypocrisy also on yeah. one level mm-hmm. So we should probably go for a fair trade music sticker on album and say this was produced effectively and correctly <laughs> but be pushing it a bit far wouldn't it Yeah I think that'd be I just I don't think and maybe this is naive of me to say that but I wonder whether it's it's necessary now I think people are um trying to progress with the sort of you know being conscious about it and and i think people think about it in a different way now yeah and do it properly okay we're going to finish the podcast off with another choice for our best produced songs of all time so kate got to choose hers on a past show so she doesn't get a second choice but paul trinker this is your debut on the show what is your choice for the best produced song of well, all time? i'm going to choose a really simple song which is shipbuilding by robert wyatt and i think that's especially beautiful because elvis costello did his version that was kind of quite nasal and then robert wyatt's one was so laid back and there's not too much on it it's mainly just piano and and string bass and then robert wyatt's very fragile voice and it's it, it's very hard to to sort of blend those sounds together and have them all come through. And this was really right in the middle of the punk era and it's, a, you know, somebody who was sold as a new wave songwriter in that the song was kind of, uh, was written by Elvis Costello. But it's just so sonically perfect, kind of very straight piano and string bass. Um, you can, in the track, you can actually just feel the air from from the string bass, like when you pluck 
and no, you don't just get a straight sine wave. You're actually getting hit and hit by the yeah. sort of edge of it, and you, it comes through on the record. It's very beautiful. And also, it came out of a very poignant moment because obviously the song is about the Falklands War, mm. but it came out as you say right in the middle of you know sort of post punk, you know the kind of the, the end of two tone, the beginning of bright and shiny eighties pop, and it was just this very lovely still moment yeah. that actually got played quite a lot on the radio as well. Yeah, and really nothing too much like it before or after just a very sort of straight classic piece of songwriting that goes back to all those 1930s traditions yet you know it came out at that time it was recorded in in that place it's very beautiful fantastic we're going to add that to the title playlist um Paul Trinket and Kate Hutchinson, thank you very much for coming in for this episode of Be There. Please come again for another one. Get your copy of Be There with Dali magazine for free by going to dali-speakers.com slash be there. And if you've enjoyed this edition of the podcast, then you might want to subscribe. Just search Be There with Dali on your favourite podcast app or go to audioboom.com and search Be There with Dali for a direct download. Thanks for listening. Be There from Dali Loudspeakers was presented by Andrew Harrison and the studio producer was me, Alex Reese. Be There is a Podmasters production.